we are in the midst of, during the summer, we're in the midst of what we call our, our preaching cohort. And what we do is we <clears throat> gather several people who are have kind of that calling from God that they feel like, you know, I, I feel like God wants me to be uh, doing more than just kind of, well, reaching out and kind of pushing my boundaries and getting into the ministry of preaching, of the word, of kind of sharing with you guys a message. And so we have about five this year that I'm sharing the pulpit with, and we got together, and we've been uh, putting a series together, and that's what we're kind of uh, laying out. But today we have the opportunity and the privilege to hear from uh, B.J. Kadig, and um, B.J. has been with us since probably January, February of 2020. So he came in just as everything kind of shut down. So a lot of you guys, you see him a lot, and you see really the effects of his ministry, because uh, we would have not made this transition. We would not have bumpers like that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have a lot of stuff if it wasn't for BJ being here. What a great opportunity to see his heart and for you guys to get a little bit, get to know a little bit more about him. Uh, he is also in charge of this whole bunch up here as well. And so if anything goes wrong, it's his fault. No, I mean, no. No, if everything goes right, it's probably up to him. We bring our own problems. So um, BJ, we just want to thank you for being here and having that, really that heart for Jesus and a heart for his people. So look forward to you just sharing God's word for us this morning. Thanks for doing that. Thanks, Van. Um, now that Van has taken the first half of a page of intro that I was going to do about myself, I don't know where to start. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor Van. Um, like Pastor Van said, good morning. Uh, my name is BJ. I'm the worship director here. Um, this team is amazing. Um, and it's a joy and an honor to get to serve here, but it's also an honor, and I'm thankful for the opportunity today to share from God's Word. So let's stand together as we read from God's Word this morning. We're going to read from Luke chapter 5. If you're at home want to grab a Bible, it's also going to be on the screen, um, verses 17 through 26. One of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus, today we see through your word that you are the God who does extraordinary things. For this man, you gave miraculous healing and forgiveness. 
The people who witnessed it gave you the glory. We want to do the same today, to give you the praise for what you do in our lives. Come and move in power. Keep moving as you already have been through your spirit today. Speak to us, Lord. Transform us. Challenge us and move us for your glory today. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. A few weeks ago, I received an email. It was one of those emails with a clickbait title. You know, the ones that like promise something that appeal to our sense of um, just discontentment about what's unsettled in our lives. This one was called A Once in a Lifetime Chance to Start Over. I was intrigued, right? It was from a money blog, even more, even less. So maybe I thought they were going to offer me an insane amount of money, and it was almost automatic. Those nine words dragged me in. So I opened it. And instead of finding a sweepstakes or a get-rich-quick scheme, it said this. We're staring at a fork in the road. Now, this email wasn't offering me a chance to win big. It was acknowledging the reality that we have been given a gift that isn't afforded to every generation. COVID has interrupted our normal and required us to confront some of the hard things about how we adapt in difficult situations. And as we're working our way back towards this idyllic pre-pandemic life that we talk about so much, the choices that we make about what we carry in from this season have to be shaped by what's happened in this past year and a half. That's part of what makes us human, right? And I believe that God works in us in the same way. He uses disruption in our lives to bring restoration. And the choices that we make in response to God's disruptions can either help us or hinder us in the work that God wants to do in and around us. So today, I want to call this message Work, a story about transformation. So the story opens with Jesus teaching in this house in Capernaum. We find that four guys are carrying this man through the city to Jesus for healing. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about how he heals and that he's in town. So they go and they decide they're bringing their friend with him. Now, Luke, the writer of the story we just read, tells us that there's a crowd gathered in that house. And there are Pharisees and there are some other teachers present there. These teachers and these scribes had also heard about the healing power of Jesus. Maybe some of their own disciples from where they lived throughout Samaria, not Samaria, throughout Judea and throughout Jerusalem. Um, And they wanted to come and see Jesus for themselves. Maybe to see a healing miracle themselves. To find out what Jesus was really all about. So we read through the story, we read about some of the tension that existed between Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, But this is where we meet the Pharisees for the first time. And over the next 24 verses that we didn't read, um, their response of awe in this story, where they worship God and give him the glory, turns into a resolution of opposition 24 verses later in Luke 6, 11. And there, they witness another healing miracle. But this time, they're filled with fury and they're talking about what they're going to do to Jesus. So what happens in these 24 verses? How do the religious leaders move so quickly from awe to fury? I want us to look at three questions today that are going to help us maybe understand where the religious leaders didn't quite get it right and how we can avoid making some of those same mistakes. I think the answers to these questions are so important for us to get right because the way that we answer these questions is either going to increase our faith 
or increase our frustration with the work that God wants to do in us and through us. The more frustrated we are, the more we're going to oppose that work. You ready for the questions? Okay, I got a lot of yeses. This is good. You're still with me. What is my work? What is our work? And what is God's work? Three simple questions. What is my work? Let's say those together. What is my work? What is our work? And what is God's work? Let's start with God's work. Um, And I think we're going to do that because the more that we understand about God's work, the easier it is for us to focus on what's actually ours. So in the story, we see Jesus forgiving this man. And we see him healing this man. Right? Notice Jesus doesn't heal the man right away. Think about how that might have felt for the four guys who dragged him through the city. No air conditioning, no cars, it's hot. They can't get in the house, right? And Jesus has the audacity to forgive him first. I would have been frustrated, right? And one of the ways I think this passage has been preached has been to create this kind of order of operations where we almost say, okay, you come to Jesus, he's got to forgive you first before he'll do anything else in your life. And I don't think that's a good interpretation. I don't think that's how God works. Instead, what I see in this story is Luke making a direct connection between the two, between the man's healing and the man's forgiveness, in order to show us something about his authority. He does it by showing that the second miracle, the healing, is proof of the first one, the forgiveness. So we see his authority because the second miracle is proof of the first one. No one could prove the man's forgiveness, but no one could refute the healing, right? I want to be careful, and I want to say here, this story doesn't say that healing and forgiveness always come together, right? I know many people who are forgiven, who still carry around burdens of illness, burdens of disability. This doesn't say that Jesus always heals when he forgives. But in this story, the healing validates the forgiveness, right? And in the midst of this exchange, we also see Jesus for the first time claiming that he's the son of man. Do you remember that section in the story? When he said that, everybody would have understood what that meant. The son of man was this person, this picture in Jewish tradition that held the authority for eternal judgment. The Pharisees don't object to Jesus' power. They don't object to his healing. What they object to is him claiming for himself the authority that God has given through the law. What's shocking is that instead of pronouncing judgment as they would have expected from the Son of Man, what does he do? He proclaims forgiveness. So we see here that God has the ultimate authority in everything. But instead of wielding that authority to bring judgment and condemnation, we see that the heart of God is about redemption. It's about forgiveness and restoration. So what do we learn about God's work from this story? Remember those questions? God's work is to intervene to do what we can't do. God's work is to intervene to do what we can't do to forgive the wrongs that we've made against him, against ourselves, against others, and to restore us into a life that is no longer defined by our brokenness. And he will do it. He has to, right? If we're going to find any hope in him, he has to do that work. 
we're honest, we know that God's got some work to do around us, right? Tell someone near you, God's got some work to do. Tell someone again, maybe they didn't hear you, God's got some work to do. So if God's job is to intervene, to do what we can't do, ours is to do what we can, right? That kind of makes sense. So imagine with me the scenario that leads up to this story. These guys are, are dragging this guy through the city. Do they know him? Were they his family? Were they friends? Had they traveled in because they heard about Jesus? Did they ask him to, did he ask them to bring him? Was he grumbling and groaning in pain as he got jostled through the city? Or was he excited? He was, Jesus is gonna heal me today. We don't really know. But the text does tell us that their motive was very clear. They felt compelled to bring this man to Jesus and place him at Jesus' feet because they believed that that was the best thing that they could do with their time and their energy that day. Nothing was gonna stop them. So they get to the house and they discover a problem. What's the problem? They can't get in, right? They start walking around saying, hey, we got this guy, we gotta get him in there to Jesus. No one's listening. They start trying to get past that. Hey, we gotta get this guy in. They start walking around the house trying to see is there another way in. Maybe they're yelling, Jesus, Jesus, this guy needs you to save him. This guy needs you to heal him today. I would imagine that as they got closer and closer, it would have been easier and easier for them to give up because the obstacles got greater and greater. On the surface, we see there are too many people. But remember, this is a crowd where there are religious leaders. Right? Let that sink in. The crowd has religious leaders in it. We would think this is the first time we're meeting them, right? We don't know anything about the Pharisees in the book of Luke yet. It's the first time we're meeting them. So we might think these would be the people who would choose compassion, who would help this guy. At least maybe they wanted to see a miracle, right? There's an opportunity. They're bringing this opportunity, but they could not have been more indifferent to this man's needs. They didn't want to help. If I may, I want to suggest here that the Pharisees and the people in this crowd show us how easy it can be for our own religious pursuits. Remember, they're here to listen to Jesus. It can show us how easy it is to let our own religious pursuit get in the way of what God wants to do around us. To get in the way of the compassionate work that God wants to do in and through us. So before we turn our attention to these four men, who it's easier to look at in this story, I think we have to look at the Pharisees and we have to ask, what would we have done? We have to look at the crowd and say, if we were in that crowd, what would we have done in that situation? Would we have helped? Or would we have dismissed the distraction to focus on what we thought was more important? It's a hard question, but I think it's worth looking at. From here, we know the rest of the story, right? The four men, they can't find another way in, so they start tearing apart the roof. There's hay falling everywhere. There's dust falling everywhere. There's mud falling everywhere into the laps of the Pharisees who are sitting in the front row. It's a crazy, but you can see, you can see the sunlight coming through in the dust that's right. You can imagine this with me. It's a crazy picture, but two things are clear in it. Number one, the four men had a faith that would do whatever it took to get this guy to Jesus. They would do whatever it took to overcome the obstacles that existed between this paralyzed man and Jesus. And the second thing that's clear, Jesus says their faith is what led to this man's forgiveness. Now, 
That sentence can make us a little uncomfortable. Their faith led to his forgiveness. Now, I don't think it's saying that salvation isn't a personal thing, that God doesn't save me, right? I don't think it's saying that. But I think what it's saying is that my decisions have an impact on the outcome for the people around me. And that's what I think our work really starts to get at. So if God's work is the power and authority, if God's work is to do what only he can do, then our work is faithfulness to do what he asks. We need to recognize that every one of us can and does play an important part in God's activity in our world. Our work is showing up to do whatever's in our power to bring people to Jesus. And just like the four men who carried him together, our work is committing to do it together as well. Our work involves the grace of dealing with the aftermath. Somebody had to come in and patch up this roof, right? We don't see what happens there in the story, but someone had to take care of it. God's work is intervening to do what we can't do. Ours is interceding to do what we can. The church needs people to step up and do the work of the gospel. This church needs people who are going to step up and do the work. Our friends, our neighbors, our families, our coworkers need people who will do everything in their power to carry them to Jesus so that Jesus can do in their lives what only he can do in their lives. Tell someone around you, we've got some work to do. So that leads me to the last question, right? I'm sure you've been waiting for this. You want to know, what am I supposed to do here, right? Um, So for this, I think we look at the paralyzed man. We don't like to think of ourselves as incapable in any way. But the reality is that each one of us experiences our own brokenness. And in story after story that I have heard of God at work, that brokenness is usually where God meets us. As we look in this story, who benefited the most? It was the man who was dragged through the city. I think it's interesting. In this story, this man couldn't do anything, and he doesn't do anything until Jesus heals him. The only thing that we see from him in the story is him getting up after Jesus heals him, taking his stuff with him, and leaving. So we look at the end of the story. We see that he's praising God, and we're happy. We've got our nice buttons up ending. Everything's good, right? But what would have happened after this man left the room? It says he went home. But what's that going to mean for him now? Home for him used to be defined by his brokenness. Home for him used to mean this place where he was still helpless unless someone else chose to help him with the things that he needed to do in his everyday life. Home for him used to be a place where his difficult circumstances dictated every aspect of his life. But now, home for him would be completely redefined by the forgiveness and the healing power of Jesus. He would have to learn how to strengthen his body. He would have to learn how to feed himself, how to provide for himself. And not only would he have to reorient his life around being able to walk, but he would also have to figure out what his newfound forgiveness would mean for his relationship with God, for his understanding of himself, and for his relationships with the people around him. 
So when Jesus forgave this man, it gave him something internal, right? Something he could think about, something he could feel, something that he had to figure out. But it also forced him to reconsider everything he understood about what life was supposed to be like. God's work is to intervene, to do the impossible things. Our work is to intercede together to do what we can. And my work is to welcome God's interruption. It's to welcome the interruption that God's activity creates in my life. Now that looks really passive at first. Just waiting, just waiting for God to do something. But when God interrupts our lives, what he does in them is far from passive. Right? It requires me to figure out how to live differently in light of what God has done for me. It requires me to reorient my whole life around what God is doing in it right now. I can never force God to interrupt, but I can look for it. I can be ready and I can embrace it. My work is to welcome God's interruption. Tell yourself, I've got some work to do. I do too, don't worry. When it comes to God's work, right, there's not a lot that we can do except trust him. If you ask any person in this church who's walked through hardship, they will tell you something about the faithfulness of God. Maybe you can tell about the faithfulness of God, right? Things might not look like we want them to. It might not be easy to wait. But God's always going to intervene to meet our true needs. We just need to trust him. We just need to trust him. When it comes to our work, though, that starts to require something a little bit more active from us. We are called as the people of God to change the world with the power of the gospel. Did you know that? We are supposed to intercede in the situations around us that need to change. But this is the important part. We're supposed to do it together. A lot of times we make this way more complicated than it needs to be, right? We either try and do it on our own and we burn out. That's complicated. I've been there. Or we set up all of these rules and structures around exactly how we think God is supposed to work in this situation and what he's supposed to do here and what we expect him to do. But I don't think we need all of that in order to make things better for the people around us. That's what interceding is. It's making things better for the people around us, right? So I think really simply, we should pray together and do together. Sounds too easy, right? Pray together and do together. Find a group of two or three other people. Ask God together to show you what he wants you to do together and do it together, right? Start with prayer and let God move you to action together. These four men followed through on the action that they believed God wanted them to do, and what happened? Their action became the interruption in this man's life that set it in a completely different direction. Their action became the interruption in this man's life. When God interrupts our lives, he points them in another direction. And he challenges everything 
He challenges us to redefine everything about ourselves in light of the hope and the grace that we have received through his forgiveness. Amen? So this is where my work comes in. When God interrupts my life, he wants me to make a change. Now, he's not trying to frustrate me, although that happens sometimes. He's not trying to make me angry. He's not trying to make things difficult for me. He's not trying to take control. He's not trying to take my happiness away. He's not trying to do any of that. He's just trying to keep me focused on the plans that he has for my life. When it's so easy for me to make a God out of what I think and what I feel. So God's interruptions pull the focus off of me, off of my hopes, off of my dreams, off of my expectations, and they remind me that his way is better. But I have a choice to make. I can either dismiss God's interruption as distractions and stay caught up in the things that I think are most important to me, or I can do the work to keep God at the center of my life. What's that work? What's it look like? It looks like spending time in God's word so that I know the heart of God and so that I can start seeing where people around me don't know the love of God. It looks like regularly spending time in prayer, not just asking for what I need, but leaving space to listen for what God wants to share with me. And letting that influence the plans that I make. I think it looks like trying to honor him as best we can in everything that we do, even when that comes at a cost to us. So that our lives can become a witness to his goodness, to his faithfulness, to his grace, to his love. When we trust God's perspective of our lives and we let him address the things in that that need to change and when we work with him to make those changes, I believe that's always going to lead to our restoration. Amen?